Picking up our study tonight in 1 Samuel, verse 1 of chapter 18. And let's ask the Lord one more time to minister to our hearts and bless this time. Father, as we bring our hearts now to your word, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, for this instructional book that you have given to us. But it's even more than that. Lord, it's your love letter. It bears your heart, your mind. And Lord, I pray tonight that you would speak to our hearts by your spirit, that you would minister to our very soul. And Lord, that you would have your way in this place tonight, that we would go forth from here, not just being hearers of your word, but doers. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across an article recently that was about things that people wonder about. Things that people wonder about. What they're thinking about. These were some samples. And guys, married men, listen, you might learn something here. And single guys who want to get married, listen too, you might learn something as well. This was the first. Why is it such a compliment to tell a woman she looks like a breath of spring, but not to tell her she looks like the end of a hard winter. And it says, isn't it the same thing? (laughs) Second was, why does it please a woman to say time stands still when you look into her face, but not to say her face would stop a clock? (laughs) Why do people punish a child for lying And yet tell the same child, just tell them I'm not home. I won't ask how many of us have done that. Why when the preacher says, in closing, doesn't he? Now you don't know anybody like that, do you? (laughs) Why does a speaker who needs no introduction get one anyway? (laughs) Those are things that people are wondering about. And I've wondered about some of those things myself, especially that, you know, and he needs no introduction. And then they give him this big, long introduction anyway. But one thing that I have been wondering about lately, I've been thinking about lately, is why so many people are looking for meaningful relationships, and yet so few actually find them. It seems everyone wants a friend, But few people actually have real friends. You know, when I was growing up, some of the most popular television programs of the day when I was growing up were programs about family. Programs like Father Knows Best and The Cosby Show, The Partridge Family, The Brady Bunch, Family Ties, Growing Pains, and Home Improvement. You know, those were some of the popular programs of the day and they were programs that that dealt with family but today some of the most popular shows in this past decade have revolved around friendships shows like friends and Seinfeld and Drew Carey and Frasier and I think it's possible that that one of the reasons why those shows are so popular or have been in this past decade is that they reflect man's desire for real friendships, for real relationships. You see, we are becoming an increasingly private society. 
And it seems that fewer and fewer people are actually have lifelong intimate friends anymore. Statistics tell us that most people are lucky if they have one close friend in their lifetime. And the fact that Americans are moving from place to place more now than ever before, it becomes very difficult to make and to keep such a friend. I looked up the word friend in Webster's Dictionary, and I like the second definition under the word friend. It says a friend is a person on the same side in a struggle, one who is not an enemy or a foe, but an ally. That's how Webster's defines a friend. Now, a British publication once offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. Among the thousands of answers received were the following. One who a friend is one who multiplies joys, divides grief, and whose honesty is unbreakable. Another one was one, a friend is one who understands our silence. Another was a friend is a volume of sympathy bound in a cloth. And another was a watch that beats for all time and never runs down. The winning definition, though, read a friend is the one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. And I really, really like that one. A friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. Well, here in 1 Samuel chapter 18, where we, we, we see here the beginnings of one of the greatest friendships in all of the Bible, Jonathan and David. We left off last time having seen David take down the giant Goliath, which in turn inspired the Israelites to take down the Philistines in general. Well, after the rout of the Philistine army, David took the head off of Goliath and he carried it to Jerusalem. He took it with him and the armor and the sword of Goliath he took back to his tent. Now, why did he do this? What was this all about? Well, the head of Goliath was a witness and the armor of Goliath was a reminder. Let me explain. David took the head of Goliath back to Jerusalem to let the people of God know. It was to give witness that there was a God in Israel who was stronger than any giant. And that there was a God in Israel that would not let his people be intimidated by any uncircumcised Philistine. What joy that must have brought to them. How that must have blessed their heart. How it must have filled their, their hearts and, with just a, and brought a confidence to their faith. And so the head of Goliath was a constant witness to Israel of the power and the faithfulness of their God. The armor of Goliath was brought back and stored in David's tent as a reminder to David. It reminded him that there was not a giant in his life that he could not defeat with the help of the living God, with the God who was on his side. And you know what? David needed that reminder. He needed it because there would be dark days ahead for David. There would be other giants in his life, giants of a different type, but giants that were just as strong just as big, just as fearsome 
as Goliath. And in those days, that armor and that sword of Goliath would serve him well as a reminder of the faithfulness of his God. Well, for those times ahead, God not only gave David the sword and the armor of Goliath, but he also gave him a friend. He wouldn't just need the armor and and the sword as a reminder, but David would need for those dark days ahead, he would need a confidant. He would need a friend. He would need somebody who was going to stand with him through that time and in that season. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17, it says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Well, notice this friend that God supplies to David. Verse 1 of chapter 18. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, you recall, Jonathan was Saul's son. He was the son of the king. And here we see that after watching David take down Goliath, and then Saul's talking to David and Jonathan's there, that something's happening in his heart and his heart, his soul is being knit. It's being fastened to the soul. That's what that word knit means. It means fastened to. It speaks of two people being bound together. It's a special relationship. Aristotle said that what is a friend? It's a single soul dwelling in two bodies. That's a friend. That's what makes up a friend. It's it's two people being knit together. It's two people's hearts being bound together in this special way. And it's a rare and special thing when God fastens two hearts together. It happens in marriage. When he brings a man and a woman together and their hearts are fastened together in that type of a way. And sometimes even the the relationship between a man and a woman isn't as deep as the relationship that Jonathan and David had on that friendship kind of level. It was a deep relationship, but it's really something. It's rare and it's beautiful and it's wonderful when God takes two hearts and fastens them together in friendship. Jonathan's heart, we're told here in verse one, was fastened to the heart of David. What are some reasons why their hearts were knit together? Well, they had a similar faith. You recall back in chapter 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they were standing around, you know, the, the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Israel were kind of, you know, at an impasse. Nothing was happening. And Jonathan comes to his armor bearer and says, you know what? God doesn't need a whole army. He can save by many or he can save by few. Why don't we go see, you know, what the Lord might want to do and see if he might want to use us to bring down the Philistines? And they went out and Jonathan and his armor bearer They took down this this whole garrison of the Philistines. They had this great step of faith that they just stepped out. Two guys wondering, two guys open, two guys in a place where they were just, hey, let's just see what God might want to do. Let's just see how God might want to work. Jonathan had a similar faith. 
when all the army of Israel would not go out to fight against Goliath. As they stood there shaking in their boots, along comes David. He hears Goliath spouting off and he's like, you know, who is this guy? That he would defy the armies of the living God, this uncircumcised Philistine. I'll go fight him. And it's my own personal opinion that Jonathan would have gone out to fight Goliath as well if his father would have let him. I think that's the only reason why Jonathan didn't go out to fight against Goliath is because his dad wouldn't let him go. I mean, what's one giant in comparison to a whole garrison of the Philistines? And so his heart was knit to David because they had a similar faith. Their hearts were knit together because they realized, they understood that the battle belonged to the Lord. Jonathan understood, hey, God doesn't need a whole army. He can save by many or by few, but it's him who saves. David went out into the battle saying, you come to me with a sword and a spear, but I'm coming to you in the name of the God of Israel, who today is going to deliver you into my hands. And so they had a they understood that the battle belonged to the Lord. They also had a similar hatred for the enemy. They have similar hatred for those that would seek to defy and stand against the army of God. And so his heart was knit to David's heart and he loved him deeply. Now, it's also worth noting that Jonathan was at least 10 years older than David at this time. It's believed that David was about 15 to 17 years old at this time. And Jonathan was somewhere between 25 to 30 years old. And Jonathan at this time was already a commander of the of the troops of Israel. He was put into that position by his dad. And then he won the respect of that position in, in what he did there in chapter 14, going out against that garrison of the Philistines with his armor bearer. But what's interesting is that Jonathan being older doesn't take the position of a big brother to David, but he actually takes the position of a servant to David. He was a humble man, Jonathan was. In Jonathan, we see some tremendous characteristics of being a friend. Let's read here and we'll note some of them beginning in verse 2. So Saul took him, speaking of David that day, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword, his bow, and his belt. Let's pause there for a minute. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, it says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. And I want to note three things tonight that we see in Jonathan that we can learn about being godly and faithful friends. Number one, a friend helps you achieve your calling. A friend helps you achieve you're calling the first thing that we are told that Jonathan did here is he made a covenant with David. Jonathan was about 10 years older than David, and he was a valiant man. He was a proven leader. He was destined for greatness. Jonathan was in line to be the next king in Israel. 
He was in line to be the successor to his dad. But Jonathan also knew that his father's kingdom was in decline. That his father's kingdom, had he was there when Samuel told Saul that the kingdom was going to be taken from him and given to somebody else. But Jonathan, being a spiritual minded man, knew that that someone else wasn't him. That it wasn't him. And I believe when Jonathan saw David defeat Goliath, that he realized that this is the one that the kingdom is being given to. He's the one. It's David. And that's why he made this covenant with David. You see, he understood, and this isn't speculation on my part. You see, David and Jonathan, they renew this covenant. In chapter 20, in chapter 20, we gained some insight into what was involved in this covenant. You can read it later. We'll get to it in, in a week or so. But it's there that we learn some of the details of it. And what we see is that Jonathan asked David this, when you come into your kingdom, when you start to reign, when you come into power, please, this is the covenant I want to make with you that you don't destroy my household. You see, that was the practice in that day. In the pagan nations, when a new king would take the throne, he would kill all of the family members of, of the family of those people that, that would be potential insurrectionists. He would put them away. He would kill them. Jonathan says, when you come, into your kingdom, when you come into power, promise me, let's make a covenant here today that you won't destroy my family. And David gave him his word that he wouldn't do that. In fact, he gave him his word that he would not only not destroy them, but that he would take care of them. What we see in Jonathan is that he didn't see David as a threat to advance himself, but rather he saw David as the man who would advance the cause of God. And he pledged his heart to support him. Here's what the friendship of Jonathan did for David. It propelled him to new heights that he could not achieve on his own. Jonathan's friendship with David worked in David's life to help him achieve the very thing that God had called him to. And that's always what a good friend will do. A good friend will believe more in you and the calling on your life than you do yourself. And he'll seek to encourage you in that. That's what Jonathan did for David. When David got down, Jonathan was there to lift him up. When David was under attack, Jonathan defended him and watched his back. When David made mistakes, Jonathan pointed them out, but never condemned him. When David got off track, Jonathan was there to point the way. And there were many times that David could have lost his way, but Jonathan made sure that that didn't happen. And we'll see all of these things as our story unfolds in the next coming chapters. But a good friend will, will do that. All, they'll do all that they can do to make sure that your calling becomes a reality. And that's what Jonathan did for David. The second thing that we see, the second mark of Jonathan's friendship is that it was sacrificial. Notice verse 4 again. It says, And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, don't miss the symbolism in this. Jonathan's robe was a symbol 
of his position. It was a symbol of his royal lineage, that he was the son of a king, that he was in line to be the next king. And yet he gave that to David. His armor was a symbol of his prestige, that he was this great warrior, that he was a commander of the armies of Israel. And his sword was a symbol of his power. You recall we learned in chapter 13, verse 22, that he and his father were the only soldiers in all of Israel that even had swords at that particular time because the Philistines who had control control over that area that they were in, they, they weren't allowing them to have swords. And so it was a sign of Jonathan's power. But he takes all of that and he lays it on David. And it says, if he was saying there, all that I am and all that I could become, I bestow on you. That's the essence of real friendship, isn't it? It's sacrifice. Being a real friend means that you'll sacrifice for your friends. Being a real friend means that it's costly. It's going to cost you something to be that friend. Being a real friend demands that you give of yourself for someone else. Jonathan sacrificed here. And he also would sacrifice in the future for the purpose of advancing and encouraging David. And so we see, secondly, that his friendship was marked by sacrifice. The third ingredient that we see in their friendship is that it endured the test. There were two tests thrown at their friendship. The first was the test of success. We see that in verses 5 through 9. And the second was the test of loyalty. We see that in verses 10 through 16. Let's first of all look at the test of success. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David's prospering. You know, he's now at that place. He's no longer in the sheepfold. He's now in the palace. He's now in that place where where Saul has him out with the troops. And wherever David goes, I mean, God's hand, his anointing is on this young guy and he's prospering. God's using him. He's he's gaining favor with the people and God's blessing him. He was accepted in the sight of all the people. Now, verse six, it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. And so the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul, it says, was very angry. What happened here with Saul is he was jealous. His heart was jealous over what the the adulation that was being given to David. He was angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? 
And so Saul eyed David from that day forward. The idea there where it says he eyed him, it means he saw him as a threat. From that day forward, the way that that Saul looked at David was this guy. Man, he's he's after my my throne. He saw him as a threat. So David's star is beginning to rise. The women are lining the streets as the troops are coming home and they're singing, Saul, yeah, Saul, we love Saul. He's slain his thousands. But oh, David, he's slain his ten thousands. And they're, they're, they're singing this song of praise to David. But as David's star is beginning to rise, not only is Saul's star fading, but so is Jonathan's. The star of Jonathan begins to fade here. But Jonathan, unlike his father, he doesn't get jealous. We never hear a peep here at all of Jonathan being in a place where he's like, hey, well, what about me? Jonathan's not going around saying, you know, what about the Philistines that I've slain? You know, where's the song for me? He's not even mentioned here. In any of this. But his heart doesn't. Get jealous because in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, we're told love doesn't envy. It doesn't envy. Now, I ask you this question tonight. How do you respond when others around you are being blessed? How do you respond when others around you are prospering? Your friend at work gets promoted and you don't. Do you rejoice with him or do you resent him? Do you fakely rejoice with him and resent him under your heart? Or are you just plain old resent him? How do you act? How do you respond when that happens? When we respond in the latter, when we get resentful, it's only a sign of not being secure in our own relationship with the Lord. It's only a sign of not being secure in the plan that God has for you. Remember after the resurrection? Jesus is meeting with his disciples there in John chapter 21. And he's talking to Peter about how Peter's going to suffer for him. That Peter has some hard days ahead. And Peter, like probably most of us, he's not liking what he's hearing. I mean, he's like, you know, man, you know, it's like the, the, the more that Jesus goes on, I mean, he's starting to get, you know, just his, just troubled by this. And he does, I think, something that a lot of us would do. He looks at John and he says, what about him? What about that guy? Quit talking about me. (laughs) Tell us how he's going to suffer, you know. Tell us what he's going to go through. But Jesus answers him and says, if I will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You, Peter, follow me. You follow me. And, you know, really, that is the key. Because so often our mentality is we get so worried about what's happening to everyone else. We get so wrapped up with what's happening with them or what's not happening with them. And the Lord would say to us, you follow me. Forget about what I'm doing with him. Forget about what I'm doing with her. You follow me. I have a path laid out for your life. I have a destiny laid out for you. 
I have a, a, a plan and a purpose that involves your life that has just been perfectly laid out and orchestrated by me. You walk in that. Forget about him. Forget about him. I have a plan for him as well. Now, what's interesting in that story with Peter and John is that John, he went through a lot of suffering as well. They tried to kill him and he wouldn't die. They tried to boil him in oil and they wouldn't cook. And finally, you know, they they banished him off to the island of Patmos. But that was part of the plan. Jesus says, if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And it's interesting because John was given the revelation. The great revelation concerning the coming again of Jesus Christ. But boy, John suffered. But the point that that the Lord was making with Peter was, look, don't worry about John. Don't worry about James. He could have said, you know what, Peter, you're being a baby here. James, he's going to get his head cut off. And this guy over here, he's going to get his arms sawn off, you know. And this guy over here, he's going to get, you know, crucified, you know. But he doesn't do that. He says, Peter, don't worry about them. You just follow me. And I think for some of us tonight. when maybe we've been looking at everybody else and going, you know, how come him and how come her? And, you know, how and the Lord's saying, quit it. You follow me. You walk with me. You follow after me. Because Jonathan was secure in his own relationship with the Lord, he was willing to take a back seat to see David promoted. And there wasn't a competition thing that can ruin friendships. He saw the hand of the Lord on David and wanted to support his friend. And so first of all, we see Jonathan sailed through the test of success. Next came the test of of loyalty, verse 10. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. And so David played music with his hand. That was what was prescribed when this distressing spirit would come upon Saul because God had lifted his hand from Saul and, and, and kind of had opened the door for the, the enemy to kind of have an open reign in Saul's life, David would begin to play his music. So David played the music with his hand, as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence, notice that, twice. Saul starts freaking out. Saul starts, you know, having this spirit, distressing spirit thing coming upon him. And David, you know, goes over there and gets his harp and he starts playing. But Saul's not calming down like normal. And as David's playing, Saul's, he's playing with this spear. And he takes it and he heaves it. David's probably thinking, praise God, he's a bad shot. And, you know, he misses. Tries to pin him to the wall but he misses and it cracks me up. If it was me after the first time, I would have said, you know, I'm done with this gig. You know, give me a, a new place to play. Give me some other crazy guy to go and, and soothe. You know, uh, I'm done with this. Let me go fight some Philistines. But a second time it happened. 
David goes back in and Saul tries to pin him to the wall. Verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all of his ways. And the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And so here we see David. He's his star is rising. God's hand is upon him. The people are starting to love him. And Saul, he realizes, man, this is it. Samuel said that my kingdom would be torn from me. It would be given to somebody else that would be a man after God's own heart. And he showed up. Here he is. And Saul was very, very afraid. But here we find Jonathan. He finds himself in a very difficult situation. His dad is in sin. His dad is in the flesh and he knows it. And we'll see this more clearly as the story goes on. But Jonathan, as we'll see, he walks this fine line between being a true to his and loyal and honoring his dad and yet being loyal to his friend. And we'll see how this plays out in the next few chapters. But it would have been very natural for Jonathan to turn on David and say something like, look at the trouble that you are causing our family. Look at my dad. He's freaking out. He's going out of his mind. And it's all your fault, David. It would have been very easy for Jonathan to do that. But Jonathan does no such thing. He remains faithful to the Lord and faithful to David, and he risks even his life when things finally get bad and David has to flee. Saul starts throwing things at his son. He starts throwing accusations at his son. And it's Jonathan, as we'll see in 1 Samuel chapter 23, he comes to David in one of his most doubting and distressed times when David has been this fugitive and he's wondering what is happening. And Jonathan comes and he strengthens David's hands in the Lord. Jonathan was a loyal friend to David. In his first seasons with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Jackie Robinson, the first black man, to play Major League Baseball. He faced hatred nearly everywhere that he traveled. Fastballs were thrown at his head, spikings on the bases. They they lashed out brutal nicknames at him from opposing dugouts and, and from the crowds. And during one game in Boston, when the taunts and the racial slurs seemed to reach a peak, in the midst of all of this, another Dodger, a southern white man, named Pee Wee Reese, called timeout. He walked from his position at shortstop toward Robinson at second base, put his arm around Robinson's shoulder, and they stood there for what seemed like an eternity. The gesture spoke eloquently, more than words. What was Pee Wee Reese communicating? This man is my friend. He's my friend. In the midst of the adversity, Pee-wee's saying, look, man, this guy, he's my friend. That's what Jonathan would be to David. 
that kind of friend. A true friend is a loyal defender before others. Now, I think it's easy to read a story like this and to think, boy, I wish I had a friend like Jonathan. I wish I had that kind of friend. And it would be a good thing. It's a good thing to have friends like Jonathan. But can I encourage you tonight? Can I encourage you tonight, instead of looking for a friend like Jonathan, seek to be a friend like Jonathan. Instead of looking for a Jonathan in your life, seek the Lord for how you might be able to be a Jonathan in somebody else's life. Seek to be that type of friend. You see, it's great to have a friend like Jonathan to be blessed in that type of way, but it's an even greater blessing to be a Jonathan. That's why Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Someone said this once, I went to the fellowship seeking to find friends and I found none. I went to the fellowship seeking to be a friend and I found many. You see, that's the key. And so often in church circles, I'll meet people and they'll say, you know, I just don't feel like, you know, I'm connecting here or I just don't know anybody here or I just don't, you know, I just don't feel like I fit in. And, and I, I always ask them, well, what have you done to show yourself friendly? What have you done to reach out to others? Because you see, in, in, a, in a group like this, there, there's always, you know, the, the person standing over there going, oh, I wish somebody would be my Jonathan or I wish somebody would be my friend. And on the other side of the room, there's somebody else saying the same thing. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord wants to hook those two people up. If they would look, if they would see, you know what, who here looks like they need a friend? Who here looks like they need a buddy needs some ministering to. You see, Jonathan, he looks a lot like Jesus. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, it says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there is a friend who is sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. It was Jesus, you see, who stripped himself of his glory, who lowered himself, who left the comforts of heaven and came down into my world and your world. And he took our punishment and he lowered himself so that you and I could be advanced in the same way that Jonathan lowered himself to advance David. Jesus, he did that for us. He became sin. So that you and I, we might partake of his righteousness. He lowered himself so that you and I could be advanced. And he made a covenant with us. And he sealed it with his blood. And if we would just believe. As we put our trust in him as our only savior. As our only Lord. As the only way. We have that assurance. That we will live eternally with him. And not only that, his friendship continues on to this day. Jesus, he's our defense attorney. He's our advocate, John said in his epistle. 
So that when the accuser of the brethren comes against you and he comes against me and he comes to bring accusation against us. Jesus stands up as our friend, as our advocate, as our defense attorney. And he says, I paid the price for that. It's already been paid. It's already been dealt with. Jesus is that friend that sticks closer than a brother. In World War II, a soldier watched in the midst of combat his best friend go down. And his friend was stuck in no man's land. In other words, he was between the trenches, mortally wounded. And this guy, as he looked at his friend out there in no man's land, and he's in his foxhole there, he, he, he said to his sergeant, he said, I've got to go get him. I just, I must, I need to go get him. And his sergeant said, no way, I'm ordering you not to. You're going to get shot. If you go out there, it's too heavy right now. You're going to get shot. And he said, Sarge, I've got to do it. And the, his sergeant said, look, it's not worth it. Don't do it. I'm ordering you not to do it. But he went anyway. And? He was wounded in the process. And when he tumbled back into the foxhole, having carried back his friend, it was apparent that his friend was already dead. And the sergeant looked at him. He said, why did you do it? I told you. I told you not to. I told you that you would get shot. Why didn't you listen? I told you that it wouldn't be worth it. Your friend is dead. And now look at you. You're wounded. And he said, but sir, It was worth it. And he said, what do you mean? How do you mean it was worth it? I tell you, your friend, he's dead. And that soldier replied, yes, sir. But it was worth it because when I got to him, he was still alive. And what he said to me when I got to him was, Jim, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. I knew you'd be there. You know what? Jesus found us wounded by sin. He found us laying out there in no man's land. He found us in that place. And in his rescue attempt, he was wounded. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. In order to save our lives, it cost him his life. But we were given new life in return. And Jesus calls us to be those same kind of friends. Turn over to John chapter 15. Jesus says here in John chapter 15, verse 12. Actually, we'll start in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Jesus, who was that friend who sticks closer than a brother, says to you and I, you love each other the way that I've loved you. How have I loved you? Greater loveth no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to do. 
And you are only my friends if you do that. If you're doing that. If that's your heart. Jonathan was that type of a friend. And he stands as a great, great example to us today of the type of friends that the Lord would desire us to be. And so I encourage you tonight to ask the Lord, Lord, show me someone that I can be a Jonathan to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being that friend. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for not tonight for being that one, that friend who sticks closer than a brother. That friend who laid down your life to give us life, who lowered yourself to advance us. And Lord, as we are familiar with these words in John 15, that this is the mark that you set out for us about friendship. Lord, I pray that they would not just be words in our minds. But Lord, it would be the reality of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would. That in this congregation. Lord, there would be many. Who know the joys of laying down their lives to advance others. Of laying down themselves in order to help to help someone else achieve their calling. Those who know the beauty and the secret, the wonder of coming alongside. Someone else. That they might grow. That your will might be accomplished in their lives. Lord, make us. Men and women like Jonathan. Like Jesus. We bless you, Lord. Let's just remain in this attitude of prayer. And as Howard leads us here in a song. I encourage you just to take this word tonight and just pray it in. If you have a need to just right now in this moment, maybe confess to the Lord that you've been focused on others. And tonight you just need to reaffirm that calling that he would make to you, follow me. Let's just take this time and let's just pray this in and lift our hearts before him.